Hi, I'm Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. The pandemic has gotten a lot of people reassessing their priorities, taking stock of the situation like their finances and seeing what can be done to improve their current lot. The book Simple Money, Turn Your Dreams into Reality has recently been released and its author Greg Tompkins joins me now to tell us about what he's observed as a financial analyst and advisor. The book offers examples from his work as a partner at Tompkins Financial, a wealth management firm in Nanaimo, British Columbia. He provides anecdotes about clients who've made good and bad decisions, informing the reader of their own options. A lot has to do with emotions, and Greg uh, examines uh, one's behavior in making decisions. Whether we understand how stocks or mutual funds work, we'll get a better sense of whether they're worth investing in. We talk uh, a lot in this part of the world about real estate, so it'll be interesting to get his take on whether it's a good place to invest in, and can one invest even if they carry debt. Visit simplemoneycanada.com for more information. Greg Tompkins received a degree in business administration from Vancouver Island University, and he studied finance at Deakin University in Australia. He earned the uh, Chartered Financial Analyst designation in 2016. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Greg Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins, good morning. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing today? Pretty good yourself. I'm doing good, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. You're very welcome. Um, so I understand that um, th- this book, um, a lot of it was written during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of time at home. I started writing it pre-pandemic, and then, you know, with the lockdowns, well, there really wasn't that much better to do. I guess uh, the first question is is um, why you would uh, choose to write a book like this. I'm, um, I guess, were you seeing a lot of people coming up to you, whether they were clients or, or prospective clients or just friends and family, say, asking you what to do, um, especially, you know, because the time, these last 18 months, 24 months or so, have been, uh, you know, n- not relatively stable for a lot of people. And and a lot yeah. of people who are, say, who have to stay at home to work even, uh, would have to think about, um, the future and think about, say, where their finances are at. Yeah, I think the pandemic has definitely caused a lot of people to question their finances more than usual. Uh, but I think the original reason I wrote it is just, yeah, I do see so many people making um, not always poor financial decisions, but I would say uninformed. Mm. You know, I'll get people that will come in and they'll tell me that they've retired um, and they have no idea what their income is going to be, and I have to walk them through the fact that they're going to have to work for another 10 years because they just haven't even looked at it. Um, so I wanted to write the book so that people could you know, at least have a base you know, level of knowledge so that they can make informed choices about their money. Uh, just because from my perspective, I see money having such an impact on everything in people's lives, whether it's ability to retire, uh, go on vacation, uh, buy gifts for your friends, go out for dinner. Uh, it just impacts everything in somebody's life. And and when you um, see, see when people do come up to you, and, and and when you see what their financial situation, um, it, it, where it's at, um, this misinformation that that, that um, you're talking about. I mean, it's very easy for us to see a friend or a family member who, who's done well, usually because of luck, with a particular investment or a particular thing that they've they decided to park their money in. Um, and they come to you and they say, hey, um, I think I should do that. Um, do, do you see a lot of that as well? Yeah, we see a lot of people trying to chase something. You know, they've heard somebody, you know, do well in something. And normally just a lack of knowledge in the sense, you know, maybe they hear yourself. You've done very well buying real estate in Vancouver or 
you started a business or you bought marijuana stocks. Yeah. Um, people want to chase that hot success, and I think the biggest thing is that mindset that they want it fast. Nobody wants to you know, put money away for 25 years and grow it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to buy the hot thing today, um, and they're always looking for some expert, whether somebody they know or somebody such as myself, to basically be able to give them that tip that's going to make them really financially successful. It just doesn't exist. Because like you said, you know, hit the nail on the head. Um, people get lucky all the time with, you know, big investments and things like that. But for every, you know, one in 100 that does get lucky, 99 don't. Um, and you can't invest like that for the long term. So you write in the book you have about, what, 300 clients? Is that right? Yeah, approximately. Yeah, so these are, these are families, these are individuals, these are companies even. And... Um, uh, I, I guess the, if you have a particular, uh, a particularly good piece of advice, it doesn't apply to everybody, does it? No, it doesn't. Everyone's situation is unique, and it's not even that if your situation is the same as somebody else's, what you want is almost always different. Mm. I see, you know, in a lot of relationships, what the husband wants is one thing, and what the wife wants is something else. Uh, so we have to show them, you know, what both of those things would cost, and then let them come to a compromise and show them how to get there. Um, so it's not just about where you are, it's about you know, differences in what people want and also what they can handle. Um, some people just can't handle taking any investment risk, so they have to do a different course of action than somebody who's comfortable investing for 30 years with higher-risk investments. So let's say I'm one of the 300 clients that you have. Um, how, how many uh, times a, a week, say, do you, do you hear from a client and... and um, here, here of an idea that's say misinformed or half baked even, uh, in terms of something that they want to do with their portfolio. Um, I would say actually very few. Uh, the majority of our clients very much buy into our approach of basically keeping things very simple. Uh, we explain that before anybody becomes a client of ours. Is this is our process. Obviously, you can do what you want. You don't have to take our advice, but this yeah. is how we manage money. Um, and we're not looking to try and, you know, get rich quick or buy the next hot stock. Um, it's more in new clients or in passing. People hear what I do and they want to pick my brain or ask me about something. Or somebody who's coming in, um, they're looking for, you know, the best dividend stocks because that's what their grandpa told them they have to buy. Yeah. It's a lot of it is just um, for myself educating these people about why that may not be the best course of action uh, moving forward for them. And so in terms of how you educate a client, um Let's say one considers himself uh, well-informed, they follow the news. Um, is that a good, say, guide as to what they should invest in? I mean, if, 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 there's, a, if, if there's a war, for example, um, some people say buy certain areas or certain sectors. Um, do, do you, um, how do you dissuade them from, from whatever they're, they're feeling and, and whatever they think is right? Yeah, I think the biggest thing on that one is just to show them some hard figures. So one of the things you're talking about is, you know, um, it's a very emotional appeal where we're trying to time things and do what's going to be the next best thing, whether it's, again, dodging or buying a certain asset due to a war. We just show people the impact that behavior makes on investments. And, you know, over time, I think with the U.S. stock market, it has averaged something along the lines of 30, or sorry, 10% over 30 mm-hmm. years. Um, and this is from a natural study. But the average investor in the U.S. stock market only averaged about 4%. Um, you can knock 2% off for fees and taxes, and the remaining 4% was due to investor behavior, whether they're trying to dodge one asset class or be in and out of the market or chase the next thing. Um, so all we try to tell people is that you don't need to get 14% by trying to dodge these things. If you can accept that you're only going to get 9 or 10, 
uh, you're still going to do better than 90% of the population. And for us, um, that's knocking out of the park. And so so this idea of finding the right financial advisor, uh, you talk about that in the book. Um, there's a lot of mistrust, I guess, in, in, in people in your trade. I mean, a lot of a lot of us think that you folks are, are trying to sell us something. Um, how do we go about finding the right person for us? Yeah, and you know that is an extremely difficult um, thing to do, and it was a big reason why I wrote the book is because I see that every day too. Is the majority of financial advisors uh, are working for you know a bank or someone whose job is to sell you products, and so that is what the majority of people see. And then you do see the more qualified people who are selling, you know, advice more than products. The problem is they're only working with people who already have a lot of money. Um, And so that's a really difficult experience for people who, you know, may not be able to work with the people who are qualified. And all they see are the salespeople each time they talk to somebody. So in trying to find somebody better than that, you almost have to find somebody who's newer or starting out and using a good approach um, or sometimes if you have a friend or family member who's working with somebody who is doing a good job, uh, they'll take you on just because you're a friend or family of their existing client. And, and in terms of, of what one should look for in terms of, of um, a financial commitment, um, uh, you know, some people uh, charge commission, some people charge uh, fees year to year. Um, what, what should we think about when we're, we're looking for a financial advisor in that regard? Yeah, I think there's, you know, one of two ways that is probably the best ways going forward right now. Um, number one is you can find someone who is just fee-for-service. So they don't actually manage your investments. They just charge you hourly or by the minute or mm. by the financial plan. So that's a really easy way to keep things unbiased. You know, you go in, they recommend you do X, Y, and Z, and they charge you $375. Um, you know the only thing they're looking out for is, you know, getting their billing time and telling you exactly what they think is the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's option one. Option two is somebody who just gets paid a percentage of your assets, um, because if they're recommending you buy A and sell C, um, they're not getting paid anything. They only think that it's going to do better for you, and that's going to generate you more money, which is in turn going to pay them more money in the future. Um, one of the best things you can look for in an advisor, though, is what's called a fiduciary duty. Very few advisors are actually under that standard. So fiduciary duty is basically somebody who has a legal obligation to put the interests of their clients first. Mm. Most financial advisors have what's called a best interest standard, um, meaning that if you can show that this is a suitable investment for the client, then it's okay. A fiduciary can't just use a suitable investment. They have to use the investment that is what is in regards to in the best interest. So if there's a lower fee product, um, one that pays the advisor less, anything like that, they're legally obligated to use that one for you. Now, what, what do you, how do you approach people who are simply risk-averse? I mean, there are a lot of people who, who um, you know, just throw their money into a bank account, a savings account, say, and, and you know, cross their fingers. Um, we know that if, if one does that, you're essentially just losing money. Um, not losing money per se, but you know what I mean, you're not making as much money as you possibly could. Um, how do you talk to people about, uh, uh, say, allaying their fears as to whether the, the, the uh, buying stock or investing in general is, is, is um, not as bad as it seems? Yeah, and again, I think that's what comes down to education. There's two things I typically like to explain to somebody, and one is really relevant right now. If you go buy a GIC, so guaranteed investment, no risk, yeah. you can get something along the lines of 2% right now. But inflation is running at over 4% right now. So while they feel like they're guaranteed a return of 2%, you 
in reality, they're guaranteed to lose 2% per mm-hmm. year after inflation. Um, so that's quite risky in its own regard. And so I explain that to them. The second one I like to use is what I call, you know, the roller coaster example. Um, picture a risky investment to the stock market as a roller coaster. And people who are on the roller coaster are investing in stocks. Um, they're taking the risk. They're going up. They're going down. But the roller coaster just keeps chugging upwards. If the roller coaster does come off the tracks, yes, everybody on that ride is going to be feeling a lot of pain. But so are all the spectators around the park because if the global stock market goes down, housing prices are going to drop, uh, asset prices are going to fall, cash in the bank can become worthless. So we enter a Great Depression scenario. Everybody's going to be feeling substantial pain, um, whether they were on the stock market or on the roller coaster or not. So by choosing not to take any risk, a lot of the times you're just choosing not to benefit in the upside, but you're still going to be hurt if we go to a major downside, whether that's from losing your job, getting evicted, uh, your house falling in value. You're still going to be subject to a lot of those risks without a lot of the rewards. I'm not asking for specifics, Greg, but in, in terms of, of this this uh, COVID era that we've, we've entered in, um, how have your clients done in terms of, of uh, their portfolios? I mean, it, it, we, we hear um, how bad the economy is in, in certain sectors, and um, but at the same time we're hearing that, that people are doing well financially. I mean, w- what is it like for, for, for you, your, your firm and your clients? Yeah, so our clients have done very well through this scenario, which, you know, is shocking. I mean, mm-hmm. we certainly didn't predict it. Um, you know, when the COVID crash initially hit, we just told our clients to hold on, mm-hmm. um, and they've done very well through that, and it surprised a lot of people. Um, the problem we see right now is people who haven't been invested um, not doing very well because, you know, they're barely getting any raises, the wages have gone up, and they don't have the assets. But as interest rates fell, uh, asset prices from stocks, bonds, houses all rose to extreme levels. Anyone who owned those assets did very well. So, yes, our clients did very well through this. Um, but we do expect, you know, the future to have some down returns um, mm. to bring things back to line because asset prices can't stay this high forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you from Vancouver, and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Nanaimo where, where you are. Um, a lot of people are talking about real estate. Um, a lot of people think that's a good investment long term. Um, what, what do you tell us in the book about that? Yeah, I think real estate can be a great investment, um, as can anything. So I'm not just trying to crap sure. on real estate, yeah, yeah. especially, as you say, in Vancouver. Had you bought real estate there in the last 10 years, you've made out like a bandit. The problem is that you have to look at the future value of something. Um, so if we know that Vancouver real estate, for example, your house should be worth $2 million in 20 years, and it's currently worth $1.8 million, well, there's very, very little return left to go there. Mm. Um, on the flip side, if the houses were worth $400,000 and the future value is still $2 million, there's still a ton of basically room to run there. And so the future value of a lot of the assets haven't changed. Um, the current values have gone up to, you know, sometimes over what they should be worth in the future. So it's not that you can't continue having good returns. It's just that the long-term rate of return looks very poor at this point for a lot of those assets. And we've become accustomed to seeing real estate prices go up, and so people view it as a low-risk investment. Um, whereas if you look at the U.S. in 2008-2009, uh, you saw asset prices in real estate dropping 30 40 50% in mm. some areas. And that's possible in Canada, too. If anything, our prices are higher than the U.S. was there, so we could see even further. I'm not predicting that. But it's certainly not off the table either. 
Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, and and that's the thing. People have to to really think about these things rather than just say um, uh, placing a bet, if you will, in a, in a casino. Because I think that's what a lot of people think investing is about, it or how it works. Yeah, and you're right. And I think the biggest thing that we see for people is that when well, they do place a bet like that in the casino and it works, yeah, yeah, a lot of people then attribute that to their own skill. You know, someone will bought, they overleveraged themselves <laughs> in Vancouver real estate and they made $400,000 last year. And now they go tell everyone what an amazing decision it was. Um, and yes, they did very well. However, if you looked at it from, you know, just a logical, rational standpoint, it was a very, very risky decision and frankly shouldn't have worked out, but it did. Um, then they continue um, making bets like that um, until it either makes them very wealthy or they flame out. What do you tell someone, Greg, who, who has debt, who, who has a mortgage, say, or credit card debt or other liabilities, um, and who, who might say to you, oh, I, I don't want to invest because I, I, I'd rather pay off that debt? I mean, can someone who has debt invest? Uh, yeah, so it really comes down to what the rate is on the debt. Uh, for example, you know, I talk about in my book how um, I borrow against my mortgage, which is now at like 1.5%. So if I can invest when I'm only paying 1.5% on my debt and earn 7 or 8, I'm doing amazing. However, if you're paying you know, 5% or more on your debt, you should absolutely prioritize paying that debt down before you even consider um, starting to invest. Because you're getting a guaranteed rate by paying off your debt at 5%. That's guaranteed return you can get now is maybe 25 if you're lucky. Uh, so I would certainly recommend to those people to stay focused, um, increase your debt payments as you can, Get those debt levels down, and once you're done paying the debt, if you can transition that same payment into savings, you'll be shocked at how quickly you start to really build up um, a better net worth once you get to the other side and can start investing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you talk about this in the book about how to deal with debt. Um, uh, you know, I see these ads all the time for um, uh, uh, consolidating debt or um, uh, consolidating one's bills. Um, we also see those ads for re- reverse mortgages and the sort. Um, I've always wondered in terms of, of um, those sort of schemes, if you will, uh, if, if they actually work. You know, a lot of these things are great tools, but, you know, if they're used incorrectly, they're very poor tools. So the idea of consolidating debt is generally to take a bunch of different debts at, you know, either short maturities or high interest rates and roll them into one lower interest rate longer maturity loan, which gets your payments um, lower. Now, that's an amazing thing to do for anybody. The problem is that if you're used to, you know, spending a thousand bucks a month on debt, and now you only have to spend $500 a month on debt, most people don't keep saving that extra $500. They (laughs) They spend spend the $500, the 500, yeah. Exactly. It puts them further behind. So in the hands of the right person, those kind of tools will do very well. That's the reason why so many companies are advertising them is because so many people have so much debt, mm. um, and they keep going into further debt. Uh, as you've seen in Canada, with the debt-to-income ratio has gone you know, out, off the charts astronomically high because too many of us are carrying too much debt because we prioritize spending over saving. And you know, when your debt's so cheap, it's hard not to. But eventually, you know, the reaper will come, and people will have to pay the consequences on that, and some people are feeling that right now. The only thing they can do is, you know, focus on doing the debt consolidation. Uh, if you need to, you know, talk to a credit counselor, and there are options, you know, to get out of debt that are going to impact your credit record. Um, but those are options and tools available. But, again, a tool is only good as a person who's using it. You talk about bankruptcy in, in, in the book. And as, as a kid, I always thought that if one declared bankruptcy, 
that meant that all your debts were gone. But that doesn't mean that, does it? No, there are definitely certain situations where your debt isn't always wiped out through yeah. bankruptcy. Um, I'm not going to get into specifics on it just because I, would, um, I don't specialize sure. in debt. Yeah, I yeah. have a base understanding on it, obviously, but I would leave that to a credit counselor to explain the, um, you know, the ins and the outs of filing bankruptcy for sure. What I enjoyed about reading your book, Simple Money, Greg, is that it, it's written in a conversational uh, tone. It, it, it's a, a great approach to, to talk to the reader as well as, you know, as the reader is reading you. Um, I guess that was deliberate on your part, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was most of the sense because I tried to write the book as, you know, I talk to people as we're having this conversation right now. That's the only way I know how to talk about money. And frankly, I'm not that great of a writer. So if I tried to write it any other way, I don't think it would have come out as well. And and you you are frank too in the book about mistakes that you've made over the course of, of your life. Yeah, and you know I keep making mistakes. I think it's part of it is that you know in order to move forward for something, you have to understand why you are where you are. And if you can't acknowledge that you had a hand in getting where you are, or you were part of the problem, you're going to go through and make the same mistake again. Um, you know, it's part of life. Is part of growing. We constantly make mistakes, but the people that learn from those mistakes and reapply themselves and try again are the people who get up and succeed. I think most entrepreneurs fail uh, in multiple businesses before they're successful, um, but they learn from each of those mistakes, and they keep trying, and they get ahead by doing that. So, yes, I've made lots of mistakes. I'm sure I will continue making more, but, you know, I always try to take credit for them and move forward from them after I've made them. Indeed. Uh, Greg, I appreciate your time today. Congratulations and, and good luck with the book. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. Pleasure to talk to you. The website for more is at simplemoneycanada.com. That's one word, simplemoneycanada.com. And the book is called Simple Money, Turn Your Dreams into Reality. Uh, It's author Greg Tompkins. Join me on the line from Nanaimo, British Columbia, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunto.